welcome to Potadelphia. My name is Dave Diorio. You can find me on Twitter at fat underscore lobster. And I'm joined by the Eastern Conference Podcaster of the Month. What's up, Gene? Hey, you know, it's great to be the uh, the Eastern Conference uh, Podcaster of the Month again. This is the second time this season. Um, you know, uh, it puts me amongst the pantheons of the greats. Uh, so that's that's something something to shout about. Me and JJ Redick, I think, are the only other ones that have managed to, to make this accomplishment. Got it. And uh, you can find me and all of my greatness at Producer Dream on Twitter, and you can find the show at Potadelphia. And tonight we are joined by at Jay Blevins NBA, uh, so that we can talk all things Sixers. I have a feeling is what we're going to sort of. Our, our, our boss. Do we have to? Our boss over at the painting yeah. lines. Yeah, our boss. Can we talk about other stuff? <laughs> Nobody ever asked my opinions about baseball philosophy or football. Yeah, so the DH, do you want it in the National League, Jay, or not? No, I don't I don't like it at all. I think I think I like um I like having pitchers there. I think it it adds a, a new element, uh, not a new element. It adds a good element. I um, I don't tend to like what DHs bring to a baseball team anyway. So, no, I'd prefer to see pitchers out there hitting. Well, then you are right in line with this show because we are all National League baseball fans who all hate the DH. So. I don't know, Dave. You got anything else that you want to ask Jason about before we start actually asking him about his expertise? Um, do you so do you shovel the snow as it's falling, or do you wait until it's done snowing and then shovel? So I'm a waiter for sure. I wait. Okay. Uh, my wife is a uh, a mid storm shoveler, so uh, she gets to do that if she wants to. <laughs> You'll stop her. No, I, I'm not going to tell her. What makes to do. you happy? I'm not going to tell her what to do, and I'm also not going to do it just because she thinks it should be done. Right, right, <laughs> right. On. I am a mid-snow shoveler. I will be out there in a blizzard, shoveling to absolutely no effect whatsoever because it all gets blown back in anyway. I, I every snowstorm, I'm like, I'm going to learn my lesson this time and just wait. But I can't help myself. I have to go do it. Uh, it's probably because I have a dog and I walk my dog and I appreciate people that, that shovel their, their walks. But okay. uh, Sixers are hot. By the way, I one of the reasons I don't do that is for pedestrians. Because I really feel like when you do it, that little bit of melt freezes the next that night. Especially if it's like a starting in the afternoon but snows all night. And now you've got a sheet of glass sheet of ice on your on your dry uh, on your uh, sidewalk now you've got a hazard versus just crunching through some crunchy snow that's that's fair that's fair but the sixers the sixers are hot so we gotta we gotta jump right we gotta jump right into the sixers uh what what is the secret to to their success right now why are they playing so well well to me the secret uh, to their success is uh, defense. Um, I think they have a lot of different ways to lock opponents down. I think their versatility, starting with Ben Simmons. Um, the one thing I see with Ben Simmons this year is Doc Rivers is using him as sort of a, let's call him a free safety 
um, early in the game. He's playing a lot of uh, closer to the baseline, out on the wing, um, and other teams are are uh, finding ways to attack uh, the Sixers in the first couple, of, uh, you know, first half, maybe part of the third quarter. You see these opposing guards really get into a rhythm and really get hot, and the team thinks, "Oh, we have something that's working. This is really working." And then they deploy the Ben Simmons queen of the chessboard out and he shuts off that valve for the other team. He goes out and he locks down that, that opposing um, player who's, who's really putting up the big numbers. And you see the team is just, they go from having their go-to guy and with not enough time to really adjust that go-to guy gets locked down and that's happening consistent, uh, consistently. And that's a really nice weapon to have in the, in the arsenal. Uh, obviously Joel Embiid is one of the best defensive, um, rim protectors in the league. Uh, he is not just a shot blocker, but he is a, a, uh, a massive presence that deters guards from going all the way to the rim. So he is a big reason why you see a lot of these guards pull up and settle for the for the mid-range jump shots, which are the least efficient shots uh, in the game of basketball. So, you know, that's the defensive side of why, why I think they just sort of bring these games home late in the fourth quarter. Can I, can I ask you more about that Ben Simmons uh, strategy? So yeah. is it a conscious decision to not – open a game that way it's it's calculated in, in in a sense to spring something on the opponent like later in the game i've asked both ben and doc they won't admit it but it's very clear to me that's what's happening i mean i'm watching game after game after game that's what they're doing or is it like there's only so much in the defense because it is exhausting to defend at that high of a yeah. level that you can only do it for you know maybe 10 minutes in a game yeah, I think that's fair too. So the the other side of it is not just the fatigue factor of having to chase around the the other team's fastest player, but these guys, your Bradley Beals and your you you name it, every team's got a a player that is so talented offensively mm-hmm. that if you stick one defender on them the whole game, they're going to find ways to beat that defender. Okay. So they you know but if you if you throw that at them, you mix up your looks and you throw that at them at the end when they're in a rhythm and they've been really cruising and now all of a sudden instead of a 6-5 guy, they've got a 6-10 guy mm-hmm. who's been watching you from the baseline, watching everything you've been doing from that from that sort of deep vantage point and can just take it all away from you. So I think there's a combination of reasons, but I think it's really an effective strategy they're using. And there just aren't many players in the league. If you really think about who are the players in the league you could really use in that way, there aren't many of them. Hmm. So why didn't Brett Brown think of, think of this before? Uh, I knew you're going to, I knew you're going to kick some dirt on that. (laughs) I knew you were coming at, at it that way. Or maybe the better question is what what effect is what is the Doc Rivers effect? Um, you know, obviously, I think even a, a, a casual fan can sort of see that Tobias Harris is almost a totally different player, and I don't know if that's that he's just being put into better positions to perform, or if he's just more confident. I'm not. Uh, maybe it's all of the above. 
but um, I think that there is a concerted uh, big change that's happened just in the change of the coach. How, how many more wins do we have now than, than we would have if Brett was still the coach? What's funny is if you go back, I think the team was 15 and seven this time last year, maybe 17 and five. Yeah. But uh, I think yeah, they started eight and oh, right? Yeah, the, the team does look different, though. And I think part of it uh, is the, the, the comfort, the ease, the confidence that Doc Rivers has in himself. He knows who he is. He knows what he is. He was never burdened with that five years, or I shouldn't say five, that three and a half years <laughs> of being told he was losing games on purpose and having to fight against the, um, the perception. I think Brett Brown is a competent coach. I think he is a great um, motivator. I think he's a great leader of young men, a, develop, a developer of young men. But I think his voice, um, his, his, his voice just lost its impact in his ability to actually get through to some of these guys. I, and um, I think Doc Rivers is a guy that comes in, he looks and he really understands what the special sauce in the players that he's got is. He understands what they are and what they're not. And he asks them to do what they can do. And he doesn't ask them to do what they, they can't do. Um, I think that it's uh, there's just a, a calm, confident ease that Doc Rivers has. And I think that if you look at Tobias Harris and you want to say what's different this year versus last year, he just looks more calm. He looks more at ease. He looks more comfortable. I, I keep going back and forth this week between which, I, which game do I feel is the best game of the season, the, the Lakers game or the Pacers game that we just watched. Um, what, what should we take away from the Lakers game specifically? Um, you know, as maybe portents of things to come or where where we are in the hierarchy, uh, you know, of the NBA right now? I'm not, I'm not sure how much to read in the Lakers game. I think the Lakers didn't deploy the defensive strategy that most teams are trying to deploy against the Sixers. And I think uh, Ben Simmons was uh, challenged um, defensively by – LeBron James and Ben was able to thrive where the other team wasn't just walling off the, the, the deep paint against him. Um, so I don't know that what we saw from the Lakers would be what they would see in a seven game series. I think there are still challenges with Ben Simmons limitations offensively and, uh, just how well understood he is by other teams and how to how to take certain things away from him. Um, so I don't think the Lakers really used a playoff defensive game plan against them. But having said that, what you see is a you have enough talent to really run with that team. And if you watched, you go be, you go below Anthony Davis and you go below. LeBron James, then you go below Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid, and you take those those four off the table. Yeah, who had the better next thirteen players or the best the next best eight players? Mm -hmm. 
And I think the Sixers match up really well from that third option down. I think they really do with a team like the Lakers. So the talent, I think, is really there. Um, so I think I think there's, you know, you're in that upper echelon talent-wise. Now the Pacers game, uh, I don't know that you can draw much because you didn't have, the, you know, your centerpiece. So that's going to well, be – that's kind of a big deal on its own, right? A road game without Embiid. It, it it's to me, it's not a big deal. Is he going to be available in the playoffs? If so, then it's irrelevant. They play, <laughs> okay. every, they play every two or three days. If he's not, you're not going anywhere anyway. Sure. So you know you don't have back to backs in the playoffs. You don't have um, four games in five nights. You don't have three games in four nights. Um, so if he's healthy in a playoff series, all of those things are relevant. Now, if they're struggling to become a four seed or a five seed and those three or four losses that you're giving up for rest nights are the difference between home court advantage and not home court advantage, much bigger deal. But if you're, you know, holding people at bay and you're, you're really looking at the one seed still, then you know, to me, it's not that big a deal. Well, I, I mean, I, I feel like at any given point, half of your starting lineup could be out for a week with COVID. And it makes this season, you know, such a, a unique animal to contend with that, like, my philosophy is you got to bank the wins any way you can, as early as you can, when you can, because there may be a stretch where you're not going to have, you know, some of your best players available. And the I mean, look, already, look what happened to the Celtics. Yeah, and the Sixers have gone through that. There was that stretch where I think it was two or three games where they were literally right. – there was a game we thought that was going to get postponed that wasn't uh, and probably should have been, and I would hope that if the situation came around Yeah, again, the Nuggets game. The Nuggets game. And, I mean, the Sixers uh, – or what I like to call the Shake Milton. Was it the Shake Milton game? Or no, that was the, the Maxi game. That was the game that Maxi I think, went off for like 39 points um, and played like 40 minutes, I, 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 which was – you know, I thought we were seeing like the this, the second coming of, uh, you know, some sort of superstar there. Uh, I still think he's a, a great player and, and better even than what we anticipated, especially getting him at 21. But uh, I guess maybe the other thing I took away from the Pacers game is sort of it was a sort of a gut check um, for some players, I guess, that are sort of further down the, the depth chart that they were they were in a position where and, uh, you know, I hate to take to kick dirt again, but you know, that, that last year, you know, I mean, like you might've seen Brett Brown run out some bizarre lineup um, to sort of work on a combination that maybe he was experimenting with. Um, but it, it just felt like they, they never gave up in that game. And, and, you know, I haven't seen a team close a fourth quarter sort of like that in a long time. Uh, what did they go on like an 18 to four run or something like that um, to, to close that game out? It was, that to me was impressive in a mentality or like a team uh, culture sort of way. Uh, you know, it may not mean as much ultimately, and it certainly may not be what you would see in a playoff series, but I think it speaks to the the fact that the guys in the bench and on the squad really do have that sort of, you know, they have a gut, they have, they have grit. Yeah. And I also think they went to a, to a two, three zone, um, 
again, you're, you're pulling the rug out from under the opponent who's gotten very comfortable. And then all of a sudden you come out with something that, uh, there aren't that many teams you can play that zone against. They, you know, you can't do that against teams that can really knock down, um, shot uh, three pointers above the break. So the Pacers are one of those teams you can get away with that. You don't do it for the whole game, but then, you know, you, you let them get there and then final quarter, you just pull that rug right from out from under them. So again, great adjustment on the part of doc rivers. Uh, I think Dan Burke is part of that. Uh, Dave Yorger, I can't get a feel for what his job is, but He's known as a defensive guy, but when I look in the huddle um, during timeouts, it's Dan Burke who is really drawing up the, the scheme. And uh, so my sense is he's running the defense. Um, so I like a lot of the things that they're doing. I think their, their uh, ability to play different styles, uh, throw different weapons at other teams to be disruptive, in the midst of a game or in the guts of the game is really pretty, pretty cool. How do you, um, what are your thoughts on sort of how, how Tyrese Maxey's being used and, you know, his development and like, how do you feel like what kind of player he's going to become? Uh, I mean, any, any guy with a handle like that is going to be a useful player. Um, having said that, um, he is a rookie, and I think as soon as he got on people's radar, he started having some some rookie type games. Uh, I don't see yet the the sort of defensive manipulation, point guard, floor general, really understanding where his outlets are, really understanding where his, his assists can come from. I'm not seeing that yet. And when you look at his shot locations, they're not high efficiency shot locations. But when you look at his feel, his touch, his handle, he's so comfortable with the ball in his hands. He's, he's got so many different ways to finish. You have to be really excited for, for his potential. Um, but I think for a rookie year, I asked Doc this. Um, uh, I actually asked Doc about this right before Tyree started to struggle is, when teams stop giving up that floater, stop giving up those those pull-ups uh, mid-range, when they start to challenge that, is he looking for, for outlets, lobs, things like that? And Doc basically said, we're not going there with him. We're going to keep it real simple. Let him go get his shots where he's comfortable. So, you know, he's a rookie. And um, uh, I think the future is very bright with him. Uh, but I wouldn't call him untouchable if they really feel the need to make a an all-in chips in the middle of the table move. Um, other teams are really going to want him. And, uh, you know, he might be a guy that they'd part with. Yeah, I mean, the, that was sort of one of the conversations that was coming out around the, the Harden possible trade, um, which from what I've understood, and I, I, I defer to you on this one, that it was as close to like Ben and Simmons, Ben Simmons and, and Thibault's agents had contacted them and sort of said, you know, you guys are going to be moved. Uh, and then I guess the Rockets came back with another counter and it was to add Maxi. And I guess that's where Daryl sort of drew the line. 
Um, I don't know if that's entirely accurate. I, I, I find, um, I find that there's, I've heard it enough that I think there's probably some truth in there, but you know, I, I guess sort of coming out of that, do you think that that would have been too much? Cause I'm sure there was also draft picks and other things going into that. Um, it's starting to, you know, I certainly think that it was the deal looked like it was better coming from Brooklyn to Houston. I feel like Houston got what I would think is the better deal than what the Sixers were maybe offering. But um, what do you think? Uh, you know, Maury has a philosophy that if you have a 5% chance at a championship or better, you have to go all in. Um, but boy, would that be going all in. You're, you're basically trading in all of your, all of your upside assets for a guy that's 31 and, um, and it would just have to work. It would have to work. And if it doesn't work, boy, you're looking at this team in two years and you're wondering, you know, what are their options now? You know, Maury is a, is a wizard as far as like getting out of bad deals or finding gems with upside or finding journeymen who are asked to do exactly one thing and they do it at an elite level for like veteran minimum. So that's, that's kind of his MO. Um, but boy, that would be like, you're giving up your 24 year old defensive uh, queen of the chessboard. You're giving up Matisse Thibel, who's 24 or so, uh, who is a defensive weapon, very disruptive off the bench. And you're giving up Tyrese Maxey, who's like 20 years old and um, might have incredible upside, you know? And I think it's too early for any of us to really know what his limitations ultimately will be. Because what I see is a guy that all of all of his all of his weaknesses right now are just the fact that shooting guards translate really well, but uh, it, as rookies, because you give them the green light, but point guards need three or four years, so. And it'd be really hard to cash in all of that. Plus probably a pick or two. Yeah. Yeah. Those picks are going to, I mean, I assume those picks are going to get traded at some point. So expect those to be packaged in a deal, but. So, I mean, Beal is the Beal is the next thing on everyone's radar right now. Right. So, I mean, are you hearing anything surrounding Bradley Beal? Uh, so the la- the latest is he's he's actually doing the opposite of what James Harden did, which was James Harden had no incentive to starve the team he was going to of assets. So he made it as difficult as possible on the Rockets to get get them a worse deal than they probably could have gotten. <laughs> Beal, I think, is doing the opposite. He's he's being a good soldier, saying he doesn't want to move. He wants things to improve there. He wants to be, you know, part of the solution. But there's no way that's true. There's no way that's true. That, to me, is just giving his GM time and leverage to uh, get the best deal possible. There's no way that this guy 
can be, I think he's, you know, seven years in the league. I don't know how many times he's been to the playoffs, one or two times, but mostly he's winning 30 games a year. This team is terrible. <laughs> There's no way. Like, what would it be that would really want him to stay there? It's not especially uh, amazing fan base. It's not an especially amazing organization. Um, so I don't buy it. I think he's just giving giving the team time to work something out. But no, I mean nowhere from the Sixers camp about interest no, I'm or anything. Not hearing anything. They're okay. they're very good at not not leaking things out. So I haven't heard anything from any agents or. It's very un Eagles like of them. <laughs> yeah, I was just curious. I wonder, you know, and when we're talking about hypotheticals, you know, is Bradley Beal the guy that you would basically turn to them and say? You know, I'll put Simmons and Thibel on the table again if you wanna if you wanna do it. Um, you know, I mean, if it, that's the sort of thing where this is what I offered Houston, uh, I'm I'm sort of interested if you'll still make that move. And do you trust a? Do you think a Bradley Beal is a better fit, maybe for the long haul, than a James Harden? Well, he's certainly younger. Um, I really like what I've seen from Beal defensively this year. Um, he's been a really pesky defender this year, and Harden is not a pesky defender. Right? He's he's a uh, if if his man is standing in front of him with the ball, I guess he'll defend. <laughs> Beal Beal's, I mean, I I've watched him in person, I think two or three times already this year, and he was just attacking those doubles with Embiid and just becoming a real nightmare for Embiid uh, on those hard, hard doubles. Um, so I think Beal has become a different type of defender than he was earlier in his career. So James Harden is a, you know, I've had multiple NBA players who just shooting the shit, uh, shoot, you know, just talking about the game, ha have told me off the record one-on-one -on -one that he is absolutely the hardest person to guard in the league. So, like, the hardest person they've ever had to guard. So there's that. Um, yeah. yeah, but I mean, like Harden's, that, that ship sailed. And I mean, I, I would be interested to hear your thoughts on how we match up against the Nets. But real quick on Beal before we get to that, does that does that even solve our problem? Does that get us over the hump? Or does that just solve one problem and like and create new ones? Uh, it really comes down to how how much they trust his ability to defend because it changes their defense entirely. It just totally changes the way that they are approaching game. Everything we just talked about yeah. with their defensive approach, pulling the rug out from teams that goes away. You don't have those weapons. You don't have a thigh ball. You don't have a Ben Simmons to shut off the valve. Um, but on the other end, you have just a much cleaner, fit night overnight when if a Joel Embiid is not out there, you are not completely crippled uh, <laughs> offensively because right now so much of what they do is, is built around the gravity that Seth Curry and Joel Embiid have. It makes everyone else's life easier. Uh, when Embiid's not there, it's just becomes a, well, 
let's just make Ben Simmons drive into four defenders six feet from the basket and then uh, jump his passing lanes and jump his routes and get pick sixes, and, and that becomes the, the game you're playing. So I think on nights that Embiid sits, you'd, you'd have a much more functional-looking roster. The way that everything is right now, it's such a well-oiled machine. It all has to be in place for it to really look elite. And when it's in place, it looks great. I just think it gets a little simpler and a little more traditional with with Beal. So what do you, I mean do you think do you think the Nets are the are our biggest competition when we talk about the Eastern Conference as a whole? Uh yeah, I do. Yeah. I do cuz I I think that you watch the Nets um they lost to Bradley Beal by the way the other night. It, after that Pacers game, I watched the end of it. And uh, they're not stopping anyway, anyone defensively. So they were like, all right, well, let's see. We'll go 145, 144, and let's see who wins. Right. They're not going to They're not gonna have that attitude in the playoffs. So I do think that they can – they are virtually unstoppable um, on a night in and night out basis on the offensive end and i just have to assume that the buyout market will solve some of their problems defensively and then just the um the intensity and the focus will will make them you know a team that can win a game 132 125 instead of trying to win 145 144 so I think I think they're the biggest. I, you know, I'm not a believer in the Bucks. I think they the Bucks are a playoff flame out team every year just because of the way right. that they we talk about shutting off the valve like they they have such a such a beautiful style of play and yet such a predictable style of play yeah. and against elite teams that have time to to uh really game plan for it and focus on it. They just don't have option B, B and C to play a different way once you stop option A. Um, the other teams are like, what are we talking about? Boston. Boston, I just don't think is up there uh, talent-wise this year. I just don't think they have it. Uh, and and who else? The Heat. I, you know, I was never a believer in the Heat. They proved me wrong last year to an extent. But I think they're the Jimmy Butler show has a shelf life. <laughs> yeah, as, as we know all too well. Right. Yeah, I know they they do seem though like the East All Stars at this point, like, like that Nets team. It's just like on when you look at those three names, it's just such an intimidating thing. Like, what would you what would you predict in a, a Sixers Nets Eastern Conference Finals? Um. Yeah, I think I'm trying to go through in my brain who's who's guarding who, mm-hmm. right? So you, you start with Kevin Durant. Who is going to guard Kevin Durant? Throw out Harden. Put anybody on Harden. He's going to eat Give them. So you put it. You put Seth Curry on Harden if you want to, because um, he's eating anyone alive for most of that game. So who's on? Who's guarding Kevin Durant? 
on the Sixers? That's a really hard question to answer. But then you look at the the Nets and um, Joel Embiid, how often does he get DeAndre Jordan in immediate foul trouble? And then who's protecting the rim for the Nets? And then does that open up Tobias uh, Tobias Harris drive down the lane, uh, the the Ben Simmons track meet to the rim? Um, So I think... I think the nets can be broken um, easier than the Sixers can be broken. But who's car? Who is guarding Kevin Durant? That is a huge question. Yeah, it'll be interesting game Saturday night. Um, that's one you know you definitely have circled on the on the calendar. So um, and, and maybe the name we haven't talked about. Um, do you think that Kyrie is going to sort of stay? on the reservation sort of for the rest of the, the rest of the season. Do you think he sort of had his, uh, no, it's, it's, uh, you, you think- you're not allowed to say stay on the reservation anymore. <laughs> oh, is that offensive? I uh, stay, stay with the program. Maybe, uh, maybe that's a little less. <laughs> We're going to change our name to the Philadelphia podcast. Uh, before long we keep up with that stuff. <laughs> Uh, but you know, we 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 hear that you know you see him kind of without it you know not uninjured leave the team and everybody sort of stuck with the 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 party line. But I, I think eventually, if these sorts of things keep happening, um, you might you might see a sort of a disruption certainly to the chemistry. And I, and I wonder if that was sort of why the Nets had felt they needed to go and get. Harden because they they weren't sure that they were going to be able to keep three together, so they wanted to have sort of a guaranteed two. I mean, you have a team of th- like the core is three prima donnas who demanded trades. It's like what kind of team yeah. cohesion and loyalty can you have out of a group that's sort of found themselves together in that way? I so my most people who have listened to me know my career ring take and it it boils down to this um for 46 minutes of a game he does not make a basketball team better he just doesn't he just doesn't it all looks great it really does look great on sports center he's going to give you a bunch of highlights but for those 40 first 46 minutes of a of a game he does not make an nba basketball team better it, it's proven um however if you have good enough players that can keep you in the game so that you're close with two minutes left, Kyrie Irving is the player you want <laughs> taking you through through those last two minutes. He's, he's one of those guys. The other two guys, James Harden and Kevin Durant also. It's just uh, I think he is – I think he's got a little bit of the JJ Reddick sort of smugness, he galaxy brain stuff where he's on such a different level you couldn't possibly understand him. And I think that puts off a lot of teammates and puts off a lot of people. Um, but it's like if you're gonna tailor make it, uh, if you're gonna have tailor made a situation where Ky- Kyrie Irving can really carry you. It's having those two guys that can just keep a game close until the end, and he's the guy that can really bring you home. So uh, I see Bryant Baker says uh, Kyrie made the Nets better all night long tonight. 
Uh, I didn't watch tonight's game, so um, yeah, I'll have to look at the, the box scores and see uh, see how things kind of shake shake out with that. Well, that I don't game. think you can see it in the box scores with Kyrie. I really don't. And I've talked to again, I've talked with NBA players about this. They agree with me. A lot of them agree as a point guard, as a leader, as a someone who builds and constructs a team and holds it together and delivers wins. He's not that guy. Um, there are a lot of better, you know, leaders out there. Um, but yeah, that last two minutes, he's he's very tough. Uh, but before we move off of basketball, um, Jason, anything you want to plug or 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 talk about tonight? Uh, I do actually. So it's Black History Month. So one of the ones I want to highlight, and it, it does have a little bit of tie to basketball. Before we move on. Nice. Uh, I was able to cover the uh, Tobias Harris uh, draft, which was a really cool event um, about a little over a year ago. He donated a million dollars uh, of his new contract uh, for last year to 10 different um, nonprofit organizations. And one really stuck out for me because this is I'm a big believer in it. And that's the, uh, the Center for Black Educator Development. Um, it is, uh, based in Philadelphia, based in Pennsylvania, and their mission really is to, um, put more black teachers into our school systems. Um, and I think big, big part of their mission statement is just, um, just giving, um, young people of color, someone that they identify with. Uh, in the classroom and uh, can can look to uh, for the future. But I personally, and uh, I, I talked to their director about this, I personally think it's really important for, for all kids um, to have people of color and um, just as much diversity in their in their teaching uh, and and as many uh, diverse voices and perspectives as possible as kids are growing up. And I think uh, they do really great things. So, uh, you know, I appreciate you guys giving me the time to plug them. Uh, you can go to phenn.org. Um, but I'll also say, I, I sent a link in my Twitter uh, and I pinned that tweet. Uh, go check them out. If you can do anything to help them, um, in their mission, donate, um, just support one of their programs, uh, follow them. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's one of the first ones I want to do. It, this is, this is an important one for me because, um, in school for me growing up, uh, some of the most outstanding and most impactful, um, voices that I got, uh, from teachers were from black teachers. So, I think it's really important. I think it's important for uh, for all of us. Um, so uh, that's that's what I'm starting with. I appreciate you guys giving me time. Yeah, that's awesome. I love that. That sounds great. Um, I definitely want to check that out for sure. So thanks for bringing that up. Um, that's great. Uh, moving on. Now we're gonna we're gonna ask your opinion on a bunch of other stuff now. So the the Nick Sirianni press conference has uh, got a lot of people talking this week. We finally got to hear uh, from from the new Sixers head coach. Eagles. And it, I'm sorry. What <laughs> you said, Sixers? Oh, I'm sorry. The new Eagles head coach. Yeah, I'm gonna like shift gears here. Um, 
And yeah, it was, I mean, by all accounts, not a great press conference. What, uh, you know, what were your first impressions of the new, the new head coach there? Well, leader has to, has to show a couple of things early on. Uh, preparation, I think is one. And I think a lot of the answers he stumbled with were predictable. So you should spend some time trying to anticipate the questions you're going to be asked um, and confidence, right? So we talked about Doc Rivers and just the ease and the comfort. And you could almost feel uh, as the years went on with Brett Brown, where he became less comfortable in his job and he became more pleading um, with things. I worry about putting this coach um, into a situation where you have a lot of older players um, who they're not going to feel like they have time to baby um, a, a young coach just trying to get his feet under him. You know, you know what I was thinking when he was when he was initially starting to talk about like we're going to be a smart team and it was like kind of all over the place. Was I was thinking about the old the old Chris Rock sketch where he said, you know, if you want something, you got to be you know authoritative and say what you mean to say, and you can't be all um, you know, excuse me, excuse me, uh, Mr. Kelsey, uh, could I ask you to pull to the outside on this play? Like you have to. You know, be a be a commander, and you know, in this podcast, you know, if you've listened to us before, you've heard the leader of men phrase uh, before. And I, like, I'm not going to knock the guy for being nervous in a press conference. Mm -hmm. Like, Mm -hmm. that's life. You know, stuff happens. Mm -hmm. Maybe he's still a great coach, but I don't know. This this starts on a little shaky ground for me. It has that transitional coach feel to me. To me, just gut instinct. It's like. Okay, this is a guy where they're going to give Carson another shot with another voice, but is this the guy you want in stomping in the, you know, the quarterback's room and saying, what the hell are you holding on to the ball for so long for? Like, is this guy going to come say that? Is he going to get up in his, up in his business and really call him out? Uh, and you want to develop your quarterback as a leader. Um, and man, this, it doesn't, it doesn't feel like the kind of voice that would do that. And then you've got your Jalen Hurts, who is, you know, he's confident. He knows who he is as a person. Now, does he have the same talent level that you, that you feel like you need to get to a Super Bowl? Okay, that that might be out for debate, but I still think he's got plenty of room to develop. But he's got that that uh, I don't even want to call it swagger. He's got that inner sort of he knows who he is as a person. How's he feel about a guy who's he's got a little bit of? It didn't come off as very sure, very clear, very concise. I know I'm not concise. Um, but you know, it just, I don't, I don't know how it would resonate with this team. Well, that's what makes you a great guest on a show. First off. (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, I think what he had to say, you know, when he talks about like simplifying things and, and being a smart, I think that is kind of the right message. I think that's the recipe that this team needs. I mean, I don't know if you've, um, 
uh, heard about this like coaching philosophy from Tony Dungy about habits and sort of like eliminating the, the more decision points that you eliminate from a player, like the better they're going to be. They're just relying on instinct or, or habit. I think that's a great coaching philosophy and to be a smart team in that way, like not being so cerebral and thinking about things all the time. And I think that kind of was part of the Carson malaise was just that he had so many decisions to make on each and every play based on like, you know, the rush is coming, which way do I slide in the pocket, you know, and all these different things, especially with a younger receiving core that, that there were so many decision points in the flow chart that he got sacked. Okay, but um, how many of those quarterbacks have played last week would have struggled with the fact that they had too many decisions? Like the 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 four conference finals quarterbacks, they're processing, they're processing reads, pre-snap reads, they're processing information, they're making those sort of decisions. Uh, they're manipulating the other teams. I get it, but I think that they have trust at the other end of the play where I, I you know I don't know that any Eagles quarterback has had that in the last like two two or three years. I this guy came in with the you know the wonderlick uh, genius. We've never seen anybody <laughs> up this fast. He's a savant and now all of a sudden five years into his career, we're making intellectual, excuses for him it doesn't make sense to me uh, look i gotta worst it's like like we've lowered the bar on his intellect to the point where we're saying he can't run an rpo i'm not buying <laughs> i gotta make it work man <laughs> look you simplify things down too much and what you know what they turn into right they turn yeah. into pick sixes too because the other team is jumping your routes because they yeah. know what to expect the interesting thing I, I sort of saw on Twitter right before we were coming on is uh, there's some scuttlebutt about the fact that the anonymous source has sort of been outed or been revealed. No, really? Who is it? I see this. Uh, you know, Jeffrey? Sort of yeah, the, right? it, well, that's what we always had the assumption was that it was Al, Alshon Jeffrey, but it it seems to be the way that I'm reading into it. It was it was Malcolm Jenkins was actually the, um, the anonymous source. And Malcolm Jenkins, he doesn't care. He, That's not he bad. Speaks truth. And it, it seems like sort of the way that it sort of played out, and uh, maybe these are some leaps in logic, was, you know, the front office, I guess maybe part of the narrative now is that the front office is always sort of, they want to claim they've always had Carson's back. And when, when one of the players on the defense, one of the other leaders of the team, um, sort of came out against him, that he, you know, that, that person, the person who was anti-Carson was sort of, moved along. Um, and also there was that incident between him and I think it was one of the offensive linemen where they sort of got into a bit of a fisticuffs. Um, you know, and it, it's sort of uh, maybe this is some spin doctoring that's going on sort of in the background. Uh, it wouldn't be above the Eagles to sort of let these sorts of myths take hold. We got um, scuttlebutts. We got fisticuffs. Oh, I've got all of the, the, the five cent. Like We're going to break into a, Don, a, a straight up Donnybrook here pretty soon. Oh, Donnybrook. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know. And I, and I, you know, even with this information, I'm still a huge Malcolm Jenkins fan. I loved him as an Eagle. I, I still like, um, you know, he's one of the guys that I, I, if I see him playing in a Saints game, he sees who I sort of zero in on on the defense. Um, but 
you know, this this Carson Wentz thing goes back almost to the day that he he arrived. It wasn't quite being booed like uh, like Donovan, you know what I mean? But uh, you know, he has sort of where you know what, what what's the old saying? Like you know, look at what what you know. If everything else is changing and you're not, you know, maybe you're the maybe you're the problem. Uh, you know, is Carson Wentz actually the common denominator in his own his own issues? Um, you know, it seems like the there's a lot of pieces sliding around him um, and and he's sort of going the other direction. And absolutely, we we all we've all tried to sort of resurrect him in our own minds. But, uh, you know, when it comes down to it, the the only guy that can make make the difference is going to be number 11 when he's when he's out on the field again. And. I don't want to hear that there was no preseason or anything. Nobody had a preseason. So, well, maybe there's room on the apology card for me to add uh, Malcolm Jenkins' name next to Alshon Jeffrey and Josina Anderson when I uh, when I yeah. send that apology card out. Um, back to the coach, real quick. Uh, this was an actual quote from his press conference. As far as the starter, I haven't really thought about that yet. And naming a starter that hasn't even crossed my mind. Dude, I don't, I don't buy that for one. <laughs> well, of course you don't buy it, but I mean, like, dude, you're actually going to try and say that? You're going to float that out <laughs> to Philadelphia media. That, that's what I, I mean. Occurred to me. Lack of preparation. Just... You didn't know that question was going to be asked? <laughs> you didn't know they would ask that question? You're going to be asked you're right. a question about your starter. I'm surprised Jeffrey Lurie didn't hand him an index card with like how to respond to that question. I would have expected him to like sort of pull it up on his phone and be like, uh, uh, yeah, no, uh, right now we are evaluating all of our different (laughs) and, uh, oh crap, Jeff, that's a typo. Uh, I I don't, I don't consider that question. I'm not a gotcha question guy. That's not how I approach press conferences at all. Right. Um, but yesterday, I was interviewing a G League two-way guy, Rajon Tucker, okay? And I asked him a very simple question since everyone during media day was saying, we're going to replicate what the Sixers do. We're going to replicate what the Sixers do. I asked him who he really compares himself to as as a player in the NBA first. And he said, Victor Oladipo. I said, okay, okay, now when it comes to the, your role on the Sixers defensively and offensively, where do you see yourself? And he said, I have no idea. I don't really have an answer for that. And my response was, well, think about it because next time I talk to you, I'm asking you again. That's literally what I said. <laughs> so if, if, if this guy, they are, what's that? He might as well have just said, I've, I've never watched the Sixers. Do you have any take? Well, I mean, w- well. wouldn't he be playing like the so-and-so role? Like, I play the Tobias Harris role in exactly. this offense. What is the role you play if, if they – I've been, I've heard from your GM. I've heard from your coach. You're going to do what the Sixers do. So which which one of these guys is your role? Right. He, he clearly hadn't been told yet. And, and it, I'm not slamming him. What I'm saying is – the who's your quarterback is like, there's no way it didn't come up in the job interview. There's no way they didn't spend 45 minutes talking about the options at the quarterback. There's no way you could walk into a press conference, not knowing you'd be asked that question. You, you are not 
until 4 a.m. thinking about all the questions. I know every interview I'm ever in, I try to predict what I'm going to be asked and go through my mind. What am I going to say about it? It's, you know, I'm not, this isn't improv comedy, right? Right. Uh, even improv comedy people sort of prepare their little, their little bits, right? That can fit into a lot of different things. It's just, I cannot believe he didn't even have a scripted nonsense answer, a non-answer. Um, so right, I, or like Chip Kelly would have been like, Carson Wentz is the quarterback for the next 99 years. Don't ask me this question anymore. Exactly. <laughs> when it changes, I'll let you know. Hey, by the way, I do have a hot take. As much as people hated Chip Kelly, you watch that six or uh, that Eagles offense, they kept a lot of that. A lot of the Chip Kelly elements in that offense, and a lot of those elements were the ones that were still working. Um, I'm not a Doug Peterson guy. Didn't didn't view him as an intellectual heavyweight. Uh, I think what he did was took a very stressful, dysfunctional uh, chemistry situation from over from Chip Kelly, re- lowered the temperature, made everybody feel good, um, and that translated into huge success um but i think chip kelly should get more credit than he does for that super bowl just saying and i also feel like chip kelly was the best press conference since buddy ryan well maybe ray Rhodes was a little bit you know i use that okay i was i was having dinner at novacare with dave spadaro and howard eskin and uh, I brought exactly that up. It was during the Chip Kelly years. And I said, he's like the offensive buddy, right? He's got that same sort of, and uh, and Dave Spadaro says, he's an asshole. He's the worst. (laughs) This is like, you know, two years in to the Chip Kelly experience. He's such an asshole. He's the worst. He he won't even make eye contact with me in the hallways. I was like, oh, okay. I guess we have a... uh, Maybe we have a problem. I but just, I mean, he had some gems. Like, you know, we're from Philadelphia and we'll fight and we fight. You know, like yeah, I, he yeah. was gold. He was gold. He was, he was, he was, uh, he was gold for the Inquirer and the Daily News and, yeah. and, and Sports Talk Radio. Uh, Spadaro yeah. is sort of the mouthpiece of the team. So not gold for him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Made his job a little bit tough. Wouldn't even talk to him. It, it's funny. I, I, just, I just remember sort of one of my takeaways from the whole Chip Kelly experience because I, I re- remember reading, sort of, you know, that first season he was there. They did that big long expose about sort of his background, and he was the first maybe NFL head coach I could ever imagine or, or ever think of where they actually were trying to figure out like who he was dating and stuff like that. Like he was such a such an enigma in terms yeah, of that sort of stuff. Enigma, and I, yeah. and can you imagine trying to talk about? Like who Rich Kotite was 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 going to dinner with, and and whose phone number he was trying to get. Like the these head coaches, like those personalities, it's it's never about like the, usually their personal lives. Even the greats, like you never talked about what Bill Bill Parcells was doing on the weekends. Can you? It's it, it just it, he just seemed like such a, a an odd duck, and I use that term very specifically. Yeah. Well, he had that Renaissance man, like oh, I'm reading, you know. Uh, Sartre and I'm, you know, I've 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 been reading 15 books, and half of my playbook comes out of Sun Tzu. You know, it's like 
I, you know, I'm pulling from all of these different references. And I think that the media was like, oh, he just dropped a, you know, uh, yeah, a Voltaire reference in the middle of, a, 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 of an answer. And did you catch that Voltaire? You know, and um, I just think it played really, really well. I think it fascinated people to see what he was very different. Uh, but apparently he didn't treat people very well. He treated people like, uh, like machines. Um, so, so did you ever, I mean, like when you're talking to your friends and stuff, do you ever like think about like, Oh, you know, if I was president, you would be my secretary of defense and you would be my chief of staff. Okay. Well, so Nick Sirianni apparently is doing that with the Eagles coaching staff. And we have a bunch of, Bro friends uh, <laughs> running the Eagles. Are they going to get are, – are they are they the smartest people in the room? Are we bringing in the next generation of coaching stat, like all directly through the Eagles pipeline, or are they going to get smashed by the old guard and put back into their place? Like I think that's a storyline to follow with this Eagles team next season. I think they'd be much better off just going to a complete youth movement with their roster and hoping that the 21 year olds and 23 year olds buy into this stuff. I just think it's not going to play well with your 34, 35, 38 year old. Jason Peters wants to come back, I guess. Um, why doesn't he just become a coach by the way? He'd be much happier. I think. I don't know. They retain the offensive line coach, so that's the one coach, you know, from the from the old guard that that was retained. I don't know if that's why, because that's where some of our older players are. Come on, Jason Peters is going to be a hell of an offensive line coach. Uh, he should have done it three years ago. Yeah, but you want to stay in the game? It's it's fine. Like, yeah, uh, I don't get it. I mean, he's only playing forty percent of the snaps anyway, right? At best, yeah. Season. And oh, if no. he goes more than that, he but I, yeah, I think I just think that the vets, him winning over the vets is going to be the big, the big challenge. Just, yeah. I get nervous. I feel like it's too much at once. Like you need to mix that in with some experience. I don't know. Yeah. I would have liked to see them get like a, a sort of a big name, uh, Wade Phillips, as an example, like a like a traditional old time, like longtime NFL, you know, probably maybe former head coach sort of option at defensive coordinator. Uh, especially By the way, is Wade Phillips? No, it's Kevin Gilbride. Uh, I was thinking the Buddy Ryan who he punched in the face <laughs> yeah. on the sideline. It was Kevin Gilbride. Yeah, yeah, it was that was in Houston. Yeah, that was. One of the classic buddy moments, man, there was, he was the only coach that I literally just, you know, everywhere he went, buddy was must see TV. Isn't there a Jeff Fisher incident also? Yeah. But apparently nobody liked Jeff Fisher. I've heard so <laughs> many people make snide remarks and like backhanded comments about Jeff Fisher, you know? Uh, oh, if Jeff Fisher's the guy you hire, if you want to go eight and eight for a decade, um, that sort of stuff. So I don't know. I mean, Jeff Fisher did go to at least one Super Bowl. Um, yeah. I, I don't he, he did go to a yard back. short, right? And, yeah. and and Jeff Fisher should have absolutely replaced Buddy Ryan instead of Rich Cotite. Oh yeah, absolutely. Oh yeah. 
yeah. I think my dad could have probably handled the team better than <laughs> Rich Gotite. Well, Buddy's Buddy's strategy was roll the ball out there, tell Randall to you know find a way to get three touchdowns, and the defense was going to get you a fourth probably, and that was your strategy. And we and loved was, it. We it, loved every second of it. It was the best. <laughs> we didn't win anything, but we loved it so much. <laughs> Dave, before we sign off, do you want to? Do we want to talk a little, maybe just briefly, about what the Phillies have sort of put together now that we've sort of seen the free agent chips sort of land? We, we when last we talked, Jason, yeah, I was afraid you were going to say the Flyers, and I, I feel like we're going to talk an hour of Flyers next episode. Yeah, probably. And I, once I, Chuck digs out. From whatever <laughs> internet black blockade zone that he's snowed in at. Um, but yeah, so my my thought was, you know, we we when last we talked, we were talking about how JT had had sort of signed and that sort of um, shaped shaked out, and we we weren't sure what they were going to do with shortstop. Well, now we know, and it's uh, you know, welcome back, Didi, for on a two year deal, which I think is really beneficial to the Phillies to get him on sort of a short term uh, short term contract. So. Um, what do you think of the lineup now that it's sort of familiar? Uh, and are you know, are you sort of glad that that you know, or did you was there another candidate that you were sort of looking for? Or do you think they're done? It, it takes some of the, I mean, signing free agents that essentially getting get you to run it back um, don't doesn't do much for me in the excitement meter. It's like okay, so we have the same team that we had last year with a better bullpen. Okay. I mean, that's, it's a better team this year than it was last year on paper, yeah, um, but it just doesn't get my juices going as much as, you know, adding to the team does. Jay, did you think that this was going to be how it was going to shake out? Did you think that they would bring back both the catcher and the shortstop, or did you think there was no way they would be able to sort of get both of them back into the fold? Well, I'm glad they brought back uh, JT because I think, to me, that's the the most important position on a baseball team, uh, aside from your ace and your closer, maybe. But you're having a really talented catcher makes your third through fifth starter uh, incrementally better, uh, which matters over the course of a 162-game season. And it makes your um, your ability to leverage your bullpen talent uh, much better. But I just hate everything about the organizational approach that the Phillies have. I just think it's one of the worst uh, <laughs> philosophical approaches to building a franchise that I've seen in professional sports over my lifetime. Uh, I think it it is and like. How would, how would you describe their philosophy? Spend a lot of money. And you don't no, like the no plan plan. Listen, listen. I I lose two hundred followers on Twitter every time I say this. <laughs> but there are certain positions you don't spend that are are uh, icing on the cake positions in in, in different sports, right? And uh, they're the positions when everything else is in place you go out and you get the guy that can go put you over the top. And in football, in my opinion, that is a tight end. Uh, and in baseball, that is a right fielder. Now, 
Um, I just don't think you start a franchise build where you have no talent pipeline in your farm system. You have a farm system that is just is not going to bring you that that upswell of talent that is pushing and pushing for playing time um, over the next 13 years, I guess the next 11 years, we burned two years of, of this contract. Um, you don't start with a right fielder. That's just, I, and I know, I know the argument, which is when a superstar hits the market, you got to get the guy, but you can't in the next breath talk about your, your limitations financially. You can't do it. If you're going to go spend that kind of money for that, those kind of years, then you need to spend an extra $5 million developing a real uh, scouting organization. And they have a trash scouting organization. They have virtually no presence in Latin America. They're like one of the, they're, they're just, they don't have a good scouting um, approach. So they keep finding these, you know, the, the Mickey Moniacs, like you're drafting a Mickey Moniac because you, instead of, I don't know, a guy with real upside. Like, Well, we talk about Ronald Acuna Jr. on this show and how the Braves just have made out with him. And then the deal that he got was essentially peanuts uh, based on today's standards for, you know, a perennial MVP candidate. It's, it's just absurd. And it's totally accredited to their, to their Latin American scouting team. Exactly. And look at um, the Marlins win, like, you know, 60 games, 60 games, 60 games, World Series win. And then they have to, they can't afford it. So they tear it all down. They trade everybody away. And then they go for another five years of winning nothing. And then they go back to the, to the, to push for a World Series. Um, this team feels like they're, maybe we can squeak in with like 87 wins. Like right. where, where is their, Where's their path to 100 wins? So what are you doing except burning a guy, a superstar in the league's time away? And I get he, I get that Philly loves his grit. I love, I know they love his personality. If he was a, if he stayed a catcher, which he wasn't in high school, I'd have a completely different opinion. If even if he was a first baseman, I'd have a different opinion. But just, I just don't think he's an he is the starting piece of building anything uh, of significance. Well, I think if he was still a center fielder too, it would be um, a, a bonus too, because that's kind of generally the philosophy is you build through the middle. So you talk about you build through the middle, exactly. Pitchers, right. catchers, the, the middle Short infield stop. or center fielder. And then you, you, you go out to the corners from right. there. So yeah, it is a, it is a little bit backwards. Yeah. It's, it's literally the last position. Left fielders, uh, maybe you could argue maybe left fielder, right fielder, left left fielders. You can get away with some pretty bad defenders, and they have done that. Right? <laughs> Pepper, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, but it's just it's like everything they do is upside down. Everything they they don't build uh, through the through the farm system. They don't invest in scouting early, early, uh, early scouting. Um, they should know, they should have the book on these kids by the time they're 14, 16 years old. And instead they're out there drafting, you know, 
high schoolers from from Upper Darby or wherever they're from. I don't know. Uh, you know, it's like yeah. as long as it's drivable from Citizens Bank Park, they'll have an idea. Of what no, no. Doing. I mean, I, honestly, I agree with you. Every every off season, I feel like they're just studying for next season, and that's it. They're like, what can we do to patch this? Or it's like they've this done that since, yeah, since 2009, they're like, let's just keep this together. <laughs> it's been yeah, I'm, I mean, Ruben Amaro basically. What are you keeping together? They're all gone. Broke a lot together. of this. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a shame because they had a good thing and then they just tried to hold on to it for too long where, you know, you look at other teams like the Cardinals, Gene, baseball heaven. Baseball heaven. And uh, and they somehow keep it going. The Dodgers are able to overpower. You know, they've got the Dodgers and the Yankees. We all know they can overpower uh, you with money um, Mm -hmm. just because of their just because of their operating income. Um, But the Dodgers approach historically to scouting and their talent pipeline has always been just fantastic. The, the Yankees are more willing to just buy what they need and go grocery shopping. But this team doesn't have the luxury to be middling as far as what they're willing to spend. And in a hitter's ballpark, you can't, you can't have all these things without really having just a massive amount of pitching prospects at all times coming up through your ranks. And giving yourselves options to make the deals you need. And, and it's just, they get fleeced on every one of their deals. They empty their farm system too often. It, it, it's just, it's a nightmare. Well, let's, I mean, let's spend five minutes and make ourselves feel better about our baseball position and talk about the Nolan Arenado trade real I was, quick. Because I was going to f- ask if there was any way we could trade uh, Bryce Harper to San Diego. Oh, stop. And send them fifty million dollars. <laughs> Gene, stop! You're gonna make me cry. I mean, hey, have you ever way, seen a uh, trade like this? You took <laughs> the best player at a position in the league and traded him, and you paid fifty million dollars for another team to take him. I've never seen this. I, I can't recall another situation where you have an like an MVP candidate, and you pay another team fifty million dollars to take him off your hands. I watched some Rockies, you know, podcasts and 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 video blogs. I mean, they're going nuts. And some of the the quotes from their owner were, uh, oh, uh, uh, who was it? Woody Page. Woody Page basically asked the owner of the Rockies if he considered firing his general manager and also if he considered firing himself. <laughs> and didn't he say, "I considered firing myself, but I was going to keep the general manager." <laughs> I never considered firing my gentleman, although I did consider firing myself. Yes, that that was his uh, basically his response to that. But I mean, what what do you tell a fan base that you did that to? I mean, any other sport you could think of where that has happened? Um, no, I mean draft compensations to move off of bad contracts, but not not sure. insane uh, insanely talented players, no. It's not even that bad of a contract by today's standards. Right. Yeah, and I don't think that Bryce Harper contract is a bad contract. I just think it is just it shows how fundamentally they don't understand how to build anything. So to me, it's like 
a case study in the wrong way to try to build everything, you know? Like, you know, I think Philly's management also does a lot of things to they, – they, they say a lot of stupid shit and they do a lot of stupid shit and then they have to do more stupid shit to make their stupid shit not look so stupid. You know, like you, Middleton comes out with the stupid money uh, quote and then they, you're almost like backed into a corner from the fan base. You have to get one of these guys. You have to either get – Harper or, you know, what's his nuts or whatever who went to San Diego. Machado. Yeah, Machado. And then, and then you know, you make this trade for JT, and now if you don't resign, resign him, you look like you're incompetent again. So now you're forced by the fan base again into this position where you have no options. But. I don't think they run a very professional operation, period. Like from top to bottom, from their PR staff to, you know – to their operations. They hired a good coach. I don't think it's, I think we can clearly see it wasn't a coach, you know, uh, everybody wanted to lay it. I think the, the previous coach had, uh, had some limitations, but um, no, it's a trash organization. <laughs> they might all be fine people. They just are incompetent in yeah. the world of 2020 sports. Like they just, the farm system concept that baseball has is such a an amazing like pull. Uh, it's a universe of itself. The the ecosystem, and to not use it, and to think you're just gonna act like you know, and not even MLS does it much better too. That you're just gonna act like you don't have that resource. Uh, in any meaningful way, they don't invest time. They they don't invest money. They they they're not serious. They're not a serious organization. Well, pitchers and catchers report in eleven days. <laughs> but other than that, <laughs> good things coming. I'm glad JT's back. Yeah, yeah. Um, all right, I think that's that's about it for today. So uh, you know, we'll be back next week. We'll have much much more Flyers talk. Uh, when Chuck is back again, we'll be on the uh, on the verge of pitchers and catchers reporting, uh, and you know we'll see if the Sixers can keep it going. Um, so please, uh, if you haven't done so already, remember to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, check us out on social media: Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just search Potadelphia. Be sure to follow the Painted Lines channel uh, on YouTube and check out thepaintedlines.com uh, for all of your Philly sports coverage. I got it all right there. And uh, until next week, have a great day at work, everybody. We are out of here.